comes from uh, Luke 24. We continue with the Easter story. It's still Easter Sunday in Luke's gospel. And we pick up as the disciples still wrestle with what happened to Jesus? Why is the tomb empty? What's going on? And so a couple of guys head out of town toward Emmaus. And we pick up their story and see how it connects with our story today. So here from the 13th verse. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And so he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body, and so they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So he said to them, How foolish you are! How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken! Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. So that they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon. And then the two that had told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Can you pray with me and for me? Lord Jesus, like the disciples on the road to Damascus, we often fail to recognize and see you that you're even with us. And so, Lord, help us reflect on our journey. May you meet us along the way. And most important of all, give us faith and the eyes to see that you are alive. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, as these disciples started their day, their lives, this moment, this weekend, seeing their Messiah, the one who is to save their nation, die on a cross, and it just shattered them. They didn't know what to do. Their lives were broken and out of joint. Has your life ever found moments where it just didn't quite sit quite right? Where in whatever circumstances you were in or going through or watching happen around you, it felt like you were disconnected and out of joint or perhaps lost and alone? But not only that, but they were headed the wrong way in their journey, right? I mean, everything that was going on was happening in Jerusalem. The time of Jesus' appearing was in Jerusalem. Yet these two guys decide to head instead to Emmaus. They're going the wrong direction, headed the wrong way. Now, and realize this isn't even the top 11 guys, right? These are two guys that are quite low on the totem pole as far as disciples go. Yet in their journey, on the wrong way, headed to Emmaus, feeling disjointed, even for them, Jesus comes along for the ride. Jesus comes along for the ride, but they don't even know it. And so oftentimes, when you find your life in that moment of being disjointed and lost, like that, uh, oh, the old little painting, right? Sand on the seashore, two sets of footprints. When I look back, there is only one. So oftentimes in our journeying, we head the wrong direction, we go the wrong way, and yet we find as we look back, Jesus was there all along, and that's the story of Emmaus today, but it's also the story of our lives. And so in looking deeper at this story and often how it affects our lives, often we can feel broken even though we have all the right things in our head, right? We know all the right facts. We know there, everything there is to know, but still something is missing. And that's what we see here. They knew all the facts. They got all their facts right. Yes, Jesus was crucified. Yes, he was buried in the, in the tomb. Yes, he'd been there for three days. Yes, the tomb was empty. Yes, the women saw that it was empty and said that angels were there and said he was alive. And yes, the disciples, they had all the facts they needed, but something was still missing in their journey. And in fact, it was the most essential piece the risen Jesus was missing. And in your journey through life, when your life feels disjointed or lost, the most important piece is to find Jesus. That's the most important piece for all of us. And so how do we go about finding Jesus when we're headed the wrong direction? Don't know where we're going, even though we've got all the facts. There must be more. It reminds me of the story of our founder, John Wesley. It's, it's a pretty famous story, especially if you've been a Methodist a while, but it's still, it's a great story because it's so much like a lot of our stories. 
I mean, John Wesley was the son of a preacher. He was a preacher's kid who went on to be a preacher himself. He went to Oxford University, the, the leading pastor school probably about anywhere. He was a, a, a fervent follower of Jesus. They met together regularly. They visited the sick and the poor. They tried to be the hands and feet of Christ wherever they went. In fact, he decided, you know, I need to go and be a missionary. And so he got on a boat with his brother Charles, and they headed over here with James Oglethorpe, and, and they became some of the first uh, citizens in Georgia. And he came to convert the Indians and share faith in Jesus with them. But on the boat ride over, remember, they, they encountered a big, bad storm with the boat rocking up and down and going all over the place. And Wesley's there huddled in the bottom of the boat saying, Lord, don't let me die. Lord, don't let me die. Lord, don't let me die. I'm not ready to die. And he looks over at these German folks, children, families, they're headed to Georgia too and they're singing hymns and they're not worried at all they're not crying out in fear they're praising the Lord and he looks at them and he looks at him and he looks at them and he looks at him and he looks and he says listen I'm going to save the Indians but who's going to save me because they've got something that I don't have Wesley had all the facts but he'd missed the risen Jesus like those on the road to Emmaus. So we need some correcting oftentimes in our journey to help get us to the right place. One of the areas where we need correcting is, is we've got to see our vision has to grow. Our vision of what God is up to is nowhere near as big as what God is really up to. Our vision has to more become the vision of God. We've got to see bigger and deeper to understand the moment we're in. And that's what the disciples that day apparently needed because Jesus very quick, very clearly takes them from their little vision more to his vision of what had just happened that weekend. We see the disciples' vision and how small it is in that 21st verse. They said about Jesus, they sentenced him to death, they crucified him. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day. That was their vision. Jesus is our Messiah. He's mighty in word and deed. He's the one sent to be the king of Israel. He's here to free us from Caesar's shackles. And as he sets us free, we'll put him in charge, and we will become the new superpower of the world. That was their vision. But it wasn't God's vision. And it wasn't Jesus' vision of what Messiah was to be. And so their vision had to get a lot bigger. And the only way that could happen was for Jesus to point to the book and say, guys, haven't you read the book? Don't you trust the book? Because here in the book, it talks about me and this week. So what did the book have to say that they missed? I'm going to try to 
Now, Jesus, he was going about seven miles. He had two hours to do this. I'm going to try to do it in 15, 20 minutes. So we'll try to be quick. But we want to look at the scripture on and off the next two weeks. Not the little story of the Bible, but the big story, right? We want to get more of the big story. What was going on? What is God up to? What is the purpose in Jesus Christ? And to look at that, we start with creation, you know, the, the birth of light, the birth of the world, the birth of the universe. And in that, God said, when he created everything, it is very good. He got to us as human beings. He made us in his image. He made us sacred. He made us in a way that God could have a relationship with his creatures unlike any other creature on the planet. And said, man, woman, y'all are very good. He then placed them in the Garden of Eden and in what we call paradise. Paradise was meant to be a, a, a temple garden. And a temple garden represents a place of relationship with the Creator, a place of love, a place of worship, uh, a place of uh, where we exist to glorify God and Him alone. He is the one we were made for. We were designed and wired to worship and glorify Him. And everything was right and good. But God didn't want robots. He didn't want to make us worship him. He didn't want to make us glorify him. So he kind of gives us some freedom and places in the middle of the garden a tree and says, listen, we can have this great relationship. I'll be your God. We can walk together in the cool of the day and just live here in paradise. Or you see that tree, don't eat from it, because the moment you eat from it, you will die. Yes, you'll become your own gods with a little g. You'll be autonomous, and you'll be able to do your own thing and go your own way and make whatever choices you want to make. But it will fracture your relationship with me. It'll fracture this uh, place in paradise. And of course... Uh, Adam and Eve choose their own way rather than God's way. Now, a little serpent along the journey kind of uh, speaks into their ear and kind of tricks them, right? To take a bite of the apple, to fall, to make the first bad choice, the first sin, the curse that would affect not only Adam and Eve, but the curse that falls on all of us, the curse of self-centeredness, the curse of of I am in charge of my life and I will do what I want to, I'll do it my way. And so we get the first problem, the problem of sin, but also the first word of good news. In the third chapter of Genesis, Jesus says to the serpent that day, who had turned humanity toward self-centeredness and evil, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on the, your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between Eve and the serpent, between your seed and her children, her seed, and her seed will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is called the Proto-Euangelion in fancy uh, theological terminology to what that means is is this is the first mention of good news after the problem of our disobedience and sin 
And what this promise of good news says is says to Eve, your, one of your children will crush evil and reverse this thing that brings death. But in crushing evil on the head, that one will be struck on the heel and suffer evil at evil's hands. That was the first word of hope in Jesus Christ. But then the story goes on. We can fast forward now to Abraham. Abraham, the father of Israel. And there in that day, he was called by God to go up onto a mountain and take his son Isaac up on the mountain. You remember, he is to take the son of promise, his one and only son who is supposed to be the hope of Abraham and the hope of the world. He was supposed to take him up there and kill him as an offering to the Lord. But then he gets up on the mountain, and there on the mountain, right before Abraham brings the knife down, he hears the Lord say, stop, and he turns his head and finds in the thicket a ram caught in the hedge. And he goes over, and the ram takes Isaac's place. And Jesus says, right, I am that ram. I will take your place if you'll let me. Well, that's not all. He goes on. We could talk about Joseph and his story of going through suffering in order for suffering to be turned into glory as he becomes one of the heads of Egypt. We could go on to chapter 22 of Psalms, a, a psalm of David, a psalm that David talks about, but for best we can experience, never experienced in his own life. A thousand B.C., a thousand years before Jesus, these words were written, and Jesus speaks these words while on the cross. Hmm. That must mean he wants us to look here to understand the cross. Because the very first verse is words most of us have heard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? so far from my cries of anguish. Words Jesus spoke from the cross. But as you read any gospel, you will hear the echoes of this psalm written a thousand years earlier. Like, for instance, in verse 6, he goes on to say, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. See all who mock me, and they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, since he delights in him. Hmm. Those there were at our Good Friday service. Isn't that what all the leaders said to Jesus on the cross? If he's the Messiah, if God loves him so much, let him come down. It's right here, a thousand years earlier. If that's not enough, we go on to verse 12. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey and open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Seems like the cross could do something like that, right? My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. A very possible reference to the cross. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 
Did the Roman soldiers know about this? I don't think so. Yet they threw dice to decide who would keep Jesus' clothes. And we could go on even toward the end. The last words of Jesus were, It is finished. It's perhaps a connection to the Psalm 22 and how it ends. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. In the Hebrew, it's a very similar phrase. To it is finished. It's a statement of completion. The work is done that I've come to do. So, I mean, that could be enough, but we could go on. Perhaps Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus' death on the cross clearer than any other passage in the Old Testament. Isaiah, again, written in probably 600 B.C. at the very least, maybe earlier than that. He talks about the suffering servant, and no one ever was sure who fit the bill, but it sure sounds a lot like Jesus. Verse 4 of chapter 53, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to our own way. That sinful nature again is riling up in us, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, Jesus takes our place. He says, you don't have to die in your self-centeredness and sin. You can let me take all your sin, all your guilt, all your iniquity and shame, and it will be nailed with me to the cross. Not only that, but it concludes he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Uh, remember, there was thieves crucified with him. And with the rich in his death, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, we see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The first glimmer of the hope of resurrection. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Along the road to Damascus, I mean, road to Emmaus, surely all this was on Jesus' lips. And we could spend more hours, we could talk about his birth in Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth as a light to the Gentiles. We could talk about all those things. But to share just a few more. First of all, Jesus talked about in his life about, I'm not going to give you any signs except the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. So I've got to spend three nights in the belly of the earth. 
Again, Psalm 16, which is another Psalm of David, shares this. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. As Peter notes in Acts, David, who wrote this, was buried. They probably knew where his grave was in Jesus' day. But yet here it talks of the hope of one who conquers the grave, a holy one who will not see decay. The hope of resurrection life was on David's lips, experienced in Jesus' resurrection. And then perhaps one final one that Jesus mentioned in that final day of his life or final week, Psalm 110, where he asked the Pharisees and leaders, what does this mean from David? Where the Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord has sworn it, it will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus asked them and said, now, if David wrote this, and if he says to the Lord God, to my Adonai, to my Lord, if David had a Lord, how can that Lord also be a son of David? When he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And here we have Jesus' exaltation that he will be ascended and seated at God's right hand. We have him ordained to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham, both king and priest of Salem. So on that day, Jesus tried to connect the disciples as they walked to Emmaus with the story and said, let me blow your mind. Let's make things a little bigger. If you don't get it, get it right here, right now. The book says I had to go to Jerusalem. The book says I would be captured by the religious leaders and given to Pilate. The book points to me being crucified and all the people gathering around. The book points to me being buried for three days. The book points to my resurrection. The book points to my exaltation to God's right hand. All that has happened is what God intended to happen. So guys, won't you trust me? Won't you trust me? Well, then as they get to Emmaus and they stop for dinner, they sit down at the table, and as we will do next week, often this sermon is a communion sermon, but you'll have, to, you'll have to put this sermon in your mind as we take communion next Sunday, right? Where Jesus takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he hands it to the two lower class disciples. And as they take the bread from him, they see. 
It's Jesus. He is alive. And he was right here with us all along, but our hearts weren't able to see it. And our eyes were not able to see it. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. They finally get it enough to run back where they should have stayed the whole time. They head back to Jerusalem and join the others. And so as we share into this story today, my word for you is if you find your life in moments in a hard place, like the disciples, in a disconnected place, like John Wesley, the best thing I can say is seek trust and believe it helps more than any facts you can get I'll close with uh, two stories first Wesley Wesley got home to England full of shame he'd failed as a missionary he came here to Georgia and just uh, blew it and so that day uh, he headed back to England and his brother came to faith in Christ and encountered the risen Christ and he was jealous because his brother had come to faith and he still didn't know what was going on and somebody asked him well let's go to Bible study tonight and he said why in Bible study I don't want to go to any Bible study I study the Bible all the time he says I went very unwillingly to Aldersgate Street that night and this fella started reading Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans which isn't very exciting he said there, like at a quarter to nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. That he has paid the debt for my sin and death, even me and even mine. And in that experience of faith rose up a different John Wesley than who was there the day before. A John Wesley who had become one of the most influential agents of change in England and America and now all over the world. All because he sought to trust in the risen Jesus. I close with this word from Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, who, who speaks into this moment when we're disjointed of his own experience and, in, and his own path through. I hope you can learn from Anselm. I'm going to try to update the language. He talks in like, you know, a thousand A.D. kind of English. So here we go. Lord, my heart is made better, bitter by its desolation. So would you sweeten it? I beg you with your consolation. Lord, in hunger I begin to seek you, and I beg you that I may not cease to hunger for you. In hunger I've come to you. Let me not go unfed. Be it mine to look up into your light, even so far, even from the depths. Teach me to seek you and reveal yourself to me when I seek you. For I cannot seek you except that you teach me, nor find you except you reveal yourself. Let me seek you in longing. Let me long for you in seeking. Let me find you in love, and let me love you in finding. Lord, I acknowledge and I think that you have created me in your image in order that I may be mindful of you. I may conceive of you and love you. 
But that image has been so consumed and wasted away by vice and evil and obscured by the smoke of wrongdoing that it cannot achieve that for which it was made except you renew it and create it anew. I do not endeavor, O Lord, to penetrate thy sublimity, uh, sublime, for in no wise do I compare my understanding with that. But I long to understand in some degree your truth, which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand that, I'm a, that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. For this also I believe, that unless I believed, I should not understand. Here, Anselm gives us some keys to the Emmaus journey. The first big key is seek him, be hungry for him, and keep seeking, and keep being hungry. If so, you'll see him. And then the second key he gives us is the awareness that we cannot open our eyes to Jesus. It's impossible. It is he who must open our eyes so that we can see him. And then the third is, all the facts in the matter, all the facts in the world don't really matter. It's trust and faith that must come first. Because facts will never make sense until we believe. So today, brothers and sisters, we were made not for religion. We were made for a relationship. We were made to be in the garden with the one who made us. But we must see him in order to be all we can be. And so will you seek him? Will you look for him? Will you let the risen Jesus be your all in all? May you see him in the breaking of the bread when you come and take communion. May you see him in your journey, but may you know that he has been with you all along.